As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Archaeo Animals. Today we'll be talking about sheep and goats. All right, so welcome again to Archaeo Animals. This is episode, what episode is it? Episode four. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's been a very long day. And um, today we'll be talking about sheeps and sheeps. Oh my gosh. Sheep. Sheep? Is that the plural? Oh, they don't mind, I'm sure. <laughs> I just generally just realized like, oh, it's sheep, isn't it? Sheep and goats. There we go. Sheep and goats, uh, pretty, would you say they're pretty, um, you know, uh, common on sites? Omnipresent. Yeah. That, that was going to be a pun, but I'm too drawn today for puns. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I just realized we never really introduced ourselves. Uh, I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always... You don't want to know. <laughs> It's Simona again, and um, actually in this episode we were going to have Kearney the rabbit as a silent spectator, but Sandy insisted that should come back on the show because, you know, talking about sheep and goats, this is all the reason she's alive in the first place, uh, being a, a herding dog, <laughs> and you know, she's been poorly lately and all that, so we'll allow it. So just as a little, um, as a little, um, I forgot I do English as well today. Uh, as a disclaimer, if you hear random noises and scratching, I'm not being weird. It's just uh, it's Sandy chipping in. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, we're an animal podcast. We have to have animals, uh, like on the podcast as well, even if they're just really quiet. Because yeah, I think we do get human guests every now and then, but it's maybe the staple is just the animal guest. It's got to be one every time. Which, speaking of, we do actually have a guest this episode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but we'll uh, more on that later. So let's just start talking about sheep and goats, not sheeps and goats, because I know how to English now. Um, and I'm infecting you with my non-native speakerness. No, I just don't think I ever learned, really. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, it kind of ties into domestication, which is what we kind of been talking about on and off in these last couple episodes when you're dealing with domestic sites farm sites things like that you're more than likely going to find sheep so they're pretty prevalent on uh, sites specifically here in uh, Britain and you know it makes sense sheep and goats <laughs> is why does that sound so weird to say uh, you know they they produce a lot uh, which is why people in the past would have them on their sites yeah and I guess they're fairly easy-ish to look after they sort of like to do their own thing but the reason what yeah the reason we've sort of like grouped them together is because um the sheep and goats are sort of um a very prevalent sort of research topic in zoo archaeology sort of worldwide just because of how much of a pain it is to tell the two apart because even though they're, they're two di they're yeah. two distinct species they are part of the same genus ovis so morphologically, they're similar enough to drive you ever so slightly insane when you've got them in your assemblage. Yeah, I mean, I I want to say I don't think I've ever run into goat in my assemblage, but that could be that I'm just not noticing it. 
because like you said they do look almost exactly the same to the point that it really has been a kind of contentious uh, topic among zoo archaeologists but there's definitely a lot of work being done sort of especially in recent years but i guess it's one of those things that is probably the case that um british economy or like just economy in the in the british isles has been mostly centered around sheep but of course the, there's also the question of how much of you know goats have just gone like misidentified and just put down a sheep because that's what we expect so like we you know, like inadvertently bias our sample because we do, oh, no, sheep. I've done it plenty of times myself. Like, I don't, I find, I don't know, like a metapodia or something, and my mind will just go straight to sheep and know, oh, hang on, let's find out whether it's sheep or goat. Well, yeah, again, though, like, it's just, we all kind of assume that we're going to find sheep at some point, again, especially here in Britain. So it's easy to just kind of be like, oh, that's going to be another sheep. And it could be a goat, uh, honestly. Um, I think the closest I ever got to almost having a goat was uh, a horn core uh, that I found in an assemblage, but I, I ended up just writing sheep because it just seemed more in shape with a sheep. It's just a good old like uh, sheep slash goat or ovicapra. Um, yeah, ovicapra is the uh... the proper term, <laughs> I believe. But I'm not because one of those things that um, sheep and goats are telling them apart the differences that are sort of very easily discerned without resorting to biometry or anything. Um, what I'm trying to say is that there's very few elements sort of in sheep and goat that are easily distinguishable that like, you literally, you find it on during excavation and say, oh no, that's definitely goat. Or no, you might be able to, it just probably you're more knowledgeable than I am. Um. <laughs> I would never ever say that. <laughs> but just kind of like talking about like sheep and goats have kind of similar purposes uh, as living creatures though. Um, I mean, they're known for their secondary products, which is why they're usually kept uh, and domesticated. Uh, You've got wool, you've got milk, all that kind of stuff. And then of course you have meat uh, occasionally. Yeah, and apparently like in certain regions, uh, goats were actually used for traction. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, like uh, we'll get back to that because um, I can't quite recall. Oh no, no, of course. What? Um, it was mostly in um, settlements in Italy during the Roman period. The the no 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 was mostly to myself because like, yeah, I, I swear I'm turning into a Roman archaeologist. <laughs> I thought something bad had happened, but it I guess is, in cause... some. It is, yeah. No, it is. <laughs> Unpopular opinion here, but I don't like the Romans. It's just it. It ever so happens. Yeah, it ever so happens that most of the remains that you tend to find on sites in Britain. I mean, the, the the Romans are omnipresent. So I left Italy when I was nineteen, moved to Britain, did archaeology here. Who follows me? The Romans. So like, it, it, no matter where I go, no matter where I look, the Romans will just like haunt me to the jaws of hell. <laughs> Okay. Oh okay. God. Sorry. We'll, 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 we'll just rename the episode as the one where Simona loses it, and, and we'll, we'll move on. That's to sad. be fair, I feel like this uh, <laughs> podcast, <laughs> this podcast is turning into an anti-classical archaeology podcast, which we're not. But personally, I always found classical archaeology boring. But you know, that's not the topic of this episode. But maybe it will be a topic of a bonus episode one day. Well, tell you what, we'll get a guest that is a classical zoo archaeologist, and they'll be able to tell you all about it if you're interested. Because, yeah, because we're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, okay. So uh, going back to sheep and goats, so they do have very similar. Um, are used for very similar reasons on site. So in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't want to say that it doesn't matter that we <laughs> distinguish the two, but in like the grand scheme of things, I guess. Yeah, and I guess the, the one thing why it would be important is that to an extent, whether a settlement will have sheep or goats tell you something about the environment, because the, oh, the yeah. species, even though they're very similar, they're adapted to slightly different environments. And I guess like this, um, with goats being uh, more suitable to rougher terrain, well, sheep kind of like to happily graze on happily graze on a field, yeah, hills and 
No, yeah, that's that's fair. What, yeah, what, what an idyllic landscape I just painted. Oh, I'm a poet. <laughs> You're a poet, and I'm uh, a, apparently a proponent of the laziest zoo archaeology ever. But no, you're right. Uh, I mean, it's the reason why um, we always should push for more detailed zooarchaeology analysis in general. Uh, but yeah, no, definitely. Um, so kind of moving on a bit, um, what else do you, w- would you say uh, sheep and goat remains tell us about sites, besides the fact that it was probably a domestic site? Well, I guess, again, as you mentioned earlier, we're we're looking at sort of um, with sheep and goat again. We can gain inference on the type of economy that was practiced in the particular settlement. Even though again, the products that you would have gotten from sheep and goat are sort of similar, but again, not quite. Because of course, sheep being used a lot more for wool, and wool being yeah. indeed one of the most important products at the time, because it would have been used for clothes and blankets and and taken people an awful amount of time to do it. Because um, I've actually done it just for this. Uh, of what what I've done for this episode is I've actually invested in a spindle wool, and Ooh. I've got some fleece from the sheep, the Manx Louton, if that's how you pronounce it, that they keep at Butzer Ancient Farm, which I've since visited from when we mentioned <laughs> it in our first episode. So I got one of the little kits that they had there, and I thought, like, oh, we'll try spinning wool. It takes a yeah. long time i don't know how people in antiquity got anything done you'll be like oh darling did you manage to go hunt we like no i've been spinning wool all day <laughs> just <laughs> i've only made 10 centimeters worth what's a centimeter <laughs> oh, i don't know <laughs> okay <laughs> just to go back for a bit though uh, yes milk and maybe- meat yeah, no, I was just saying, it might be good to also uh, just real quick uh, ID what a spindle whirl is for the audience because not everyone will probably know. Uh, I've taken some photographs of me attempting and failing at spinning wool. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's an instrument, it would have been made out of a, a variety of materials, but it's, uh, well, it's a stick with a rolly thing at the end. <laughs> But it's essentially, it's got a hook on top, which you attach the fleece onto. Uh-huh. And then essentially by spinning it round, it will spin the wool into actual yarn. Sounds pretty boring. <laughs> it, 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 it takes some time. But but yeah, wool. Just shows you tenacity of the uh, past peoples, I guess. Well, you, you, you gotta put, you gotta get dressed for winter. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's motivation enough to do it, is, uh, well, you could either spin wool, take ages, or freeze to death. Yeah, well, it's either that, or, like, or making sort of um, boundaries, like, with um, wooden fences and things, because imagine, like, doing that with the, just, like, rods and withies, and just, like, weaving, or like, even, like, uh... ba- basketry. And, like, it's, it's great. I, I wish to learn all of that one day, because it's, it's good. I think it's very good that we keep these traditions alive. And these crafts, but also, oh boy, it takes some time. Like, yeah, hats off to everyone that does it and is keeping the tradition alive because it's just, ah. <laughs> We're just not made for it. <laughs> it is pretty cool, though. And also, uh, talk a bit more about, like, going to Butzer Farm because you saw the goats there, didn't you? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I, I just uh, think of, um, yeah, uh, I, I love the goats over there. I'm so jealous. I saw the pictures. They look great. I'm just like, yeah, I'm I'm struggling to articulate a little bit, but I really loved both the sheep and the goats and Sandy loved the sheep and the goats to the point at which we had to take her away. Because she never met a sheep or a goat before. And of course, she's a herding breed. They they are the reason she's alive. (laughs) So (laughs) I think saying that she really liked them would be an understatement. No, I really enjoyed meeting the sheep and goats also because... um, Unlike other sort of ancient farms like um, Fengate, which we also discussed in the first episode, they like to keep sort of ancient breeds. And of course, what is meant by ancient breed is that it's not exactly, you know, the same sheep they would have had in the Neolithic, but probably like closest thing. Close enough, yeah, I think. Close enough. And um, so they had traditional breeds. So they had Manx Loughton for sheep and their traditional English goats. 
which I particularly oh, cool. liked because they're, they're marking on the coats. It reminded me a lot of antelopes. And I, I befriended one of the goats to the point in which I, I decided to paint a, a portrait of her until four in the morning. And oh. <laughs> so I just gave her lots of chin scratches, which I'm sure like is uh, of no relevance to anyone who's listening to the podcast. But I did really enjoy that goat. And she seemed to enjoy my company. So, well, to be fair, though, it's a great example of if anyone's really interested in, you know, learning more about past sheep and goat species, uh, Bus- Butzer Farm is a great place to visit. I-, I swear they're not paying us to talk about that. I wish they were. Are you kidding me? I'd also wish they'd pay for me to go visit because uh, I'm broke. <laughs> I'll-, I'll take you down at some point. Oh, thanks. But yeah, no, um, it's similar to what they, uh, there's a bunch of sheep in the Orkneys as well, who are kind of like an old, like, breed of sheep uh, that specifically is known for uh, eating seaweed. Oh, you get um, you get sheep eating seaweed down in Romney Marsh as well, so in the southwest Okay. Mainly do that. But there's a, there's a few sort of primitive slash rare breeds about, at least in Britain. So you've got, yeah, the Manx, uh, uh, Lout, was probably not Louton, it's be Manx uh, Luden. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not entirely sure to pronounce it. Please, like, because the, the breed is native to the Isle of Man. So please, if there's anyone listening from the Isle of Man, tell me how to pronounce it. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and they're supposed, you know, much like some of the Orkney sheep are meant to descend from the primitive sheep ones that found sort of in Shetland, Scotland, the Hebrides. And um, and you have, yeah, oh, they're like, yeah, you got your own Shetland breed and Hebridean breed. I don't know uh, how yeah, yeah. you pronounce it. Not a native speaker. Please don't, don't shoot the non-native speaker. Um, <laughs> and, of course, you have the Soe, which they keep at um, Fengate. Which again, yeah. a primitive sheep, and the way you can tell is that they're kind of small and stocky-ish. Yeah, they they have sort of coarse hair, but essentially, with ancient sheep breeds, okay, they won't be exactly same as, but again, close enough because they're they're the closest to um, what they would have looked like sort of back in the day. So some of them do indeed sort of very loosely descend, supposedly, from the sheep that were first brought into Britain during the Neolithic because that, that might come as a shocker to a lot of people that sheep are not native to Britain like not even <laughs> by chance just no um yeah um and I think uh with that we are going to take a short break uh but when we come back we will be talking more about sheep and goats and how we can tell uh if they're in our assemblages and scratch our chin some more As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, and we're back with episode four of Archeo Animals. We're talking about sheep and goats. And... Uh, so just to start off this uh, next segment, let's kind of talk more about, you know, where they're actually from, because again, they're really important to how we understand domestication. So of course, we'd want to understand where they're actually from. So Simona, if you want to take that. Well, I guess in terms of the domestication of sheep and goats itself, it'll be a lot of the same stuff that's been mentioned for other domesticates and dogs in the previous episode that of course, even though we can speculate on when and where they were domesticated based on the first evidence that we found, it is more than likely that both species were actually domesticated in different areas, you know, different attempts were made during different time periods. Uh, the dog is chewing on my headphones, so that's fine. She's just very keen on the topic. But of course, from the evidence we have, we presume that sheep uh, descend from uh, the mufflon, whose scientific mm. name is Ovis orientalis, and they're supposedly domesticated, so around 11,000 to 9,000 BC. So sort of among the earliest right after dogs. And um, that's supposed to take place sort of in the Near East, because let's face it, all domestications have essentially taken place in the Near East. After they were domesticated sort of in that region, sheep husbandry just like spread like wildfire across like Eastern <laughs> Europe and Western Europe. And uh, as we mentioned before, of course, sheep are a very sort of reliable, staple domesticate because they're, they're just good happily, um, you know, uh, grazing away on low grassland. Because that's one of the differences I forgot is that sheep uh, graze goats' brows. Was that real? I had no idea about that. That also sounds ridiculously fake. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put something about that in the show notes if I can find it. Um, yeah. While goats... Um, were domesticated, supposedly sort of around the same, a similar time period in Southwest Asia, you know, maybe Southeastern Europe as well. Uh, and of course, mm. compared to sheep, they're hardier, more versatile, require less care than sheep would. And, um, you know, they're, they're happy enough just in poor soil conditions. So they're a nice all round animal. They're still sort of more, I guess, more widespread in the Southern part of Europe compared to Northern Europe. Yeah, because you, you tend to find them a lot more in the Mediterranean, even like where I'm from to this day, because uh, they're just so reliable and then easygoing. But that might just be me because I really like goats and I'm just very biased. Um, uh, but yeah, so yeah, that's more likely um, where sheep and goat come from. And of course, yeah, domestication taking an awful amount of time and happening in several locations. And again, as for dogs and uh, other sort of main domesticates, it probably involved the quarrelling of young animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just uh, resulted into us having lovely, lovely, fluffy friends that are still friends with us to this day. And they uh, make up about 90% of... Uh zooarchaeology assemblages and probably life, and probably life on earth minus cockroaches oh, god gross <laughs> i can't believe you would ruin this episode about adorable sheep with that i don't know i've already lost it when i made uh, yet another reference to roman archaeology and and, the legs. <laughs> uh, and and then and there's more to come because of course um much like dogs uh, in the roman period they would have already had breeds of both sheep and goats which of course wouldn't be the same breeds that we have now i think we went down a rabbit hole in the previous episode about how you can't really discern breed breeds in the archaeological record but breeds were indeed mm -hmm. a thing so I've had a, a little scout around the written record, and again, we're talking Roman stuff. <laughs> and um, again, forgive us for yeah. talking about Roman stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, what the ones I found so frequently being mentioned are like Ethiopians, Arabians, and um, white fleece sheep, uh, goat haired Ethiopians. Apparently, that's a thing. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and Tarentines. Which I've not um, oh. 
which I presume will probably uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, literally off the top of my head, because that reminds me of um, a town in Italy called Taranto. Okay. Which only was in Apulia, so that might be where the breed came from. But please, if, if you're into sheep, tell me more about that. <laughs> we mean if you're into sheep, uh, Arkell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, um, it's funny because I feel like um, when we talk about breeds, I think everyone immediately goes to dog. So it's always interesting to kind of talk more about breeds and different animals, like, as you say, sheep and uh, goat. Oh, because they would have had all sorts of like coming in a variety of colors, whether those were intended or not. And um, I guess the same with goats. But I think um, compared to sheep, goat breeds uh, went other than sort of the primitive goat, or at least for, for Britain anyway, uh, more breeds didn't get established until much later on, which in a way sort of caused some trouble to the mm. British primitive goat, uh, which is, uh, as the name suggests, uh, sort of the closest thing we have to the goats that were sort of brought over during the Neolithic. They would have had very coarse hair and big horns, and but then from the 18th century, they started like develop, developing hornless breeds for... Very mm. obvious reasons, because like sheep, you know, like uh, goats are not always as mellow. Uh, they will <laughs> ram into you if, if they so decide. They won't hurt much, but it's still, you know, not pleasant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as they develop sort of hornless <laughs> breeds, uh, the primitive goat really suffered. So I think it's now classed as a rare breed because there's very few about, like just a few feral herds and captive individuals. Mm-hmm. But enough about breeds uh, um, and more about the bones, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, actually, speaking of, you know, uh, having uh, hornless ones, um, I mean, that's one of the uh, ways we can kind of pinpoint whether or not we've got sheep uh, in our assemblages, uh, at least in for me. Um, although, they, of course, you can kind of uh, confuse them with cattle horns. Yeah, I guess you could. Yeah, and I think what the reason because there are also hornless breeds. What makes it really tricky is when it comes to sexing, because of course we have mm. sexual dimorphism is usually uh, uh, what it is uh, a fairly good indicator of sex. And now the misconceptions that, of course, like and it applies to cows as well, is that the males will have horns and the females won't. But then you get certain breeds where the females also have horns and you get breeds yeah. where the males don't have horns. Because, you know, it can't, nothing can be simple. Because life is difficult. We, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I was looking like in terms of, like of discerning between sheep and goat bones. I do actually have a couple of bones scattered around here, including like two skulls. But the one sheep that I've got is hornless. So... It's not. Being- oh, I've got plenty of horned sheep. Uh, Alec can always take a picture for the uh, show notes if you want. Because yeah, I think I've got a few horned ones, but they're in bubble wrap at the minute. Ah, fair enough. So sort I've of not properly unpacked the reference material. Although you can, at a glance, I guess the skull is one of the easier ones, more so than the teeth themselves, even though there, there are ways to distinguish between sheep and goat by looking at the teeth. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually find the best indicator in the skull is the nose, like the nasal yeah. bones. Because sheep tend to have sort of a Roman nose or a me nose. Because, of course, like, you wouldn't know what I look like. I- I've got, but my nose is as large <laughs> as it is delicate, uh, not unlike Aww. that of a sheep. <laughs> um, <laughs> while the sh- goat noses tend to be more delicate, if that makes any sense at all. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. I've, I've, I've found that when it comes to, like, what works for me personally with uh, IDing animal bones, it's always something really weird like that, you know? That you will remember, like, by strictly the unscientific name. Just like the distal end of <laughs> metapodials for me are the rolly bits. Um. I just like, with metapodials, uh, usually it's like the C and the D to tell the difference between a tarsal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just me like a child, basically, like making a letter with my hand and be like, oh, that matches. Uh, (laughs) Very professional. Very great. (laughs) But I guess if you do have uh, a horned sheep and a horned goat, um, the one way you could tell horns apart is that uh, sheep horns tend to bend a bit more and be more parallel. Yeah. While goat horns will 
diverge and be like end in more of a point and sort of curve slightly less compared to mm-hmm. sheep. And of course, that is more reliable with ancient breeds because you would have had variation, but not to the point that we have today. Because then, yeah. you know, with sheep breeds now, like horn shapes have just gone wild. Um, <laughs> another good indicator that I find is the cranial sutures. So I can't pronounce stuff properly because I never said half this stuff out loud before. Um, it's always the case. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, so I'm just uh, I'm looking at the school so right now, but in um, the um, so the cranial sutures, if you look in the occipital, so at the back of the skull, in sheep and goat, you'll find that there's more of a pentagon-like shape in sheep, while the goats will have like a weird reverse pentagon with curved sides. I'll post photos. Yeah, don't worry. This this sounds like wild to anyone listening, but we will post photos uh, so you could follow along, I guess, uh, at home. Uh, <laughs> it just it, it's because we like to make it interactive. It's not because we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, um, unfortunately, we can't come to everyone's house with our reference collections. I would love to. <laughs> yeah, if you, anyone wants to host us, we'll come and show you exactly what we're talking about in person. Oh, we could uh, do that. Like record like at, at listeners' houses. Like, yeah. today, today we're at Bob's house talking about dolphins. <laughs> Please provide us uh, dinner as well. That'd be great. I love free food. <laughs> well, actually, what I was going to talk about with um, sheep and goat remains, well, specifically sheep remains, is that, you know, we talk about this whole episode, we've been talking about how sheep and goats are so similar that it's hard to differentiate. I also find that sheep and deer can be really difficult to differentiate. <laughs> Or red deer and cattle. That too, yeah. But when it comes to like um, the mandibles, especially because you know we don't live in a perfect world where we have nice, uh, fra- like you know, whole intact bones. We get them in tiny little fragments. So that's the kind of stuff you end up dealing with, and fragmented at least. Uh, sheep and deer mandibles look so similar sometimes, but at least the teeth look slightly different enough. Oh, but the one. That- that um and, and again a strictly unscientific indicator that I personally use to tell sheep and deer apart is that it, the teeth themselves they tend the sheep teeth tend to be a lot more straight edged. Yeah, no, that's actually something I've used. While uh, um, I forgot what the name of the side is, because you have a lingual, I guess the buccal side of a uh, uh, deer teeth tend to be tends to be bumpier. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. For those at home who don't know what, uh, like, buccular means, just a real quick definition. It's the outside part of the mouth, not the one pointing towards the tongue. The tongue, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, um, that's kind of actually how I see it as well, um, which is super helpful. But if you get if you get a mandible with no teeth and just, like, the actual shape... I mean, luckily, deer team uh, deer mandibles uh, tend to be more curved. I find, and sheep tend to be a bit more straighter. Yeah, and I guess, like in terms of unless, um, well, unless you get a juvenile or something, in yeah, terms yeah. of size, if you're dealing with British archaeology, at least uh, you didn't, you don't really get fallow deer, which of course is the one whose size is perhaps closer. To sheep, because then you have roe deer, but it's much too small. Because uh, red deer is much too big, and fallow deer wasn't really in the country. Because it, it, fallow deer is technically, we'll, we'll get to it in a, in a later episode. But fallow deer is technically native to Britain, yeah. As in, it was here during the last ice age, but then went extinct. So there's been a number of reintroductions over time, but it wasn't really until the Norman, the Norman period that uh, a breeding sort of um, a viable fallow deer population was established. So if you look in sort of the earlier assemblages, you're not as likely perhaps to confuse deer and sheep. See, with me, uh, lucky me, I get uh, juvenile deer and uh, adult sheep, so. At least you're getting wild animals. So that's mm-hmm. wild. True. I mean, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll probably have an episode where uh, I talk more about the, the garbage that I'm going through, but. Uh, <laughs> the labors it's- of Alex. Uh, it really is. Let me tell you, honestly, it was, that 
<laughs> I was just gonna, it was a cold and stormy day at the office. It actually was today. But, um, I mean, to be fair, I'm kind of sick of going through sheep <laughs> these, these days. There's a lot of sheep I'm going through uh, in my assemblage right now. Um, but thankfully, it's now a kind of, a, I wouldn't say expert. I would never say I'm an expert of anything. But I'm pretty good now at <laughs> IDing sheep uh, and occasionally goat. Well, then he can tell me a bit more about, because if you're taking anything away from this episode, is that to tell apart sheep and goat requires a very keen eye and the skill that I lack. It's It tends to take about, I don't know, three or four cups of coffee for me to really get into it. And then, of course, again, much like for any domesticate, there's also the local local variation and breed variation. Just, just to spice it up because it wasn't it wasn't hard enough as it was. Yeah, like basically, what we want you to take away from this uh, episode, as well as this podcast in general, is that what sounds like it's kind of easy ends up being really, really difficult as you get into the nitty gritty. Which, of course, we need to get into the nitty gritty if we want to, you know, know enough about the past. But <laughs> Man's a headache. Exactly, because uh, yeah, as we said, we can they can tell us so much about the environment, the economy, and 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 they're just cute. They are cute. That, that's half the reason why I'm into zooark because I, I just love all animals. I mean, they're dead animals, so it's not like you know. But it's a nice way because I know technically we're using the animals to reconstruct the lives of past people, but. In the way, like, the reason why I got into it is more like it's for the animals themselves in a way because you you give them a voice because there's been enough sort of, there's been a good amount of research on, you know, human osteology and things, but the animals just tend to be sort of left aside, you know, no one tells the animal story. No, yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, even like what we were talking about with sheep and goat bones, like, It's only been like within the past couple of decades that we've really gotten into differentiating between the two with different methodology. Because before that, before zooarchaeology was really a discipline, no one really cared enough that you would tally the number of faunal animals and kind of call it a day. So if anything, this you could see this as an example of just kind of how the discipline became, you know, quote unquote, proper discipline. And I guess to give you like a very, very quick idea about how we can discern uh, well, gain inference on economy. I just love that that sense of just gain inference. Um, it's probably wrong as well, but a, a good way to get information about the economy of a particular settlement um, is again looking at domesticates and uh, by looking at sheep and goats in particular. By aging the animals, you can actually get what uh, is called a kill off pattern. So based on what at what age uh, an animal was culled. And also based on sex, uh, you can sort of speculate what type of economy was practiced at the site. So say like you have a site with a lot of sheep, but they were mostly adults when they died. Chances are they were using them for wool. Um, Now, if a lot of what you find is subadults, so like sort of when the animal reaches an optimum weight in which like you'll gain more weight if it gets a bit older, but it's not as economically viable for the amount of extra meat you're getting in return, then, you know, as uh, I've already hinted, chances are they were using them for meat. So as soon as you get to the subadult stage, okay, it's big enough, it's not going to grow much more, so I guess we'll just eat it. Um, yeah. And with milk, of course, like it, it all sounds pretty obvious, but you'll find that a lot of the juveniles that you find are males, because, of course, they would have called the males and kept the females for milk. But of course, there is trouble with making these assumptions because chances are settlements probably had, uh, their herds are probably multifunctional and getting different products out of them. And there is an inherent bias because juvenile bones are quite porous. They don't preserve as well. So chances are maybe, you know, not finding as many juveniles, not because they weren't there, they weren't part of the death assemblage. It's just they've not preserved as well. And and there's a host of sort of perinatal mortality factors of just because animals just die. I mean, life was harsh enough for people, let alone the domesticates that would have been kept by the people. So, but just a little taster of things you could speculate and argue based on um, the sex and age that you get in your assemblage. 
Yeah, and you know what? Uh, in the next segment coming up, we'll be having our first interview, and we'll be kind of talking more about putting these kind of ideas into uh, motion on an actual archaeological site. So we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with a nice little interview about sheep and goats. Well, just sheep. Just sheep. Okay. No, no goats. No, I think I've talked enough about goats. But yeah, break. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras, plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. Now back to the show. Hello and welcome back to Arcue Animals. With you is your very lonely host, Simona Falanga. Alex has unfortunately been stricken by the plague, uh, so she's not going to be around um, for this while this interview is being recorded. Of course, you're more than welcome to send her a feel well soon gift. I'll suggest in the form of maybe fish bones or some pig teeth, because <laughs> uh, we know she loves them very much. You may notice that I don't sound uh, terribly well myself, and that's because I'm currently recovering from this very same plague that's been going around while the interview was being recorded. But it appears I, I may not be torn out of my flesh prison just yet, as, as in uh, I won't. I'll live. I'll be fine. But yes, uh, today um, we actually have a real human guest <laughs> that speaks and everything, not just uh, animals randomly meowing and trying to nibble my ear while I'm trying to record. Um, so if you'd like to say hello to our guest. Yeah. Hi, my name is Albina. Oh, hello, Albina. And uh, thank you for coming to the show. It's, uh, it's really like, I can't stress it because, as I said, I'm, I'm an awkward cucumber, but it's very exciting to have someone speak about what I think is a very fascinating subject that I personally know very, very little about, so please bear with me. And Abina is here today to discuss her research um, titled The Horses and Sheep of the Vikings, Archaeogenomics of Domesticates in the North Atlantic. Yes. So, Albina, if you wouldn't mind... Uh, introducing yourself a little bit and telling ourselves and our listeners a bit more about you know yourself and what you do and yeah so uh, yeah my name is Albina and I'm actually Icelandic and I'm based in Iceland uh, I work at the Agricultural University of Iceland which is uh, uh, I like to call it a micro university we're not a very big university and we're most mostly focused on um, sort of agricultural education uh, but there's also a research both applied and sort of uh, curiosity driven research uh, but I'm also a PhD student at the University of Oslo uh, and that's where my project is actually sort of uh, most of the lab work and stuff uh, takes place there. Uh, I initially uh, 
did my BA in archaeology at the University of Iceland. And then I went on to New York and did a master's in zoo archaeology. So I'm a trained zoo archaeologist and now sort of a geneticist in training, I guess. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so that's sort of, it's a very interesting sort of divide to straddle moving from the humanities to more of a, I guess, a pure sort of uh, science field. And it's interesting often sort of the tensions that can come up uh, because the just, uh, I guess the traditions are so different within the humanities and then within sort of the hard sciences. And uh, there's a lot of like, archaeologists are very wordy. All of our articles are very long and very, you know, we like to use our words. Uh, and then uh, biologists and geneticists, they love to write articles that are like 2000 words. <laughs> so it's actually, it's very interesting and sometimes it's really, really challenging to try to sort of uh, meld those two disciplines. And we really want the, the the project that we're working on to be a very sort of interdisciplinary project um, that sort of is melding sort of the best of archaeology and sort of ancient genetics. Interdisciplinary projects are the best kind of projects, really. Yeah. Like if you just like do the one thing, it, it gets boring after a while, but it's just a, a breath of, of fresh air when you incorporate so many disciplines together and like uh, I'm of the idea that you can always learn something new and from anything and anyone regardless of their background there's always like some opportunities to learn and not entirely sure where I'm going with this but learning yeah. is great and interdisciplinary stuff is also great <laughs> yeah I always like to I sometimes I've taught like kids about archaeology and I always like to say I mean the past is everything that has happened up until now. And we just need all of the tools in the toolbox to understand the past. And that includes humanities and hard sciences, genetics, archaeology, history, pretty much what everything, like we need all the tools to be able to understand the past because the past is so complicated, but it's so important for us to understand. So I really think that like, I mean, an archaeology in, in many ways, I think, is just by nature a very interdisciplinary science that has always used methods from other sciences uh, to try to work on archaeological questions. So uh, in, in some ways, I think like uh, what's happening now with interdisciplinarity be, being so popular, really, um, is just like really something that had already been going on in archaeology for decades. But it's just now being like sort of people are using their words more to sort of identify it in a more sort of formal way so yeah i feel like it's sort of uh, yeah yeah and i almost forgot as well i want to thank you for being here by the way and um, i'm sure alex extends her thanks um yes thank you for inviting me no it's it's great to have you here um, i really enjoyed it. i've listened to a few episodes uh, of the podcast and i really enjoyed it so i think it's great it's a good format i think so how have you been listening to it and still accepted to come here? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. And um, like I said, no, it would be really interesting because it's, um, it's a subject that I personally know very little about because, um, as I mentioned in previous episodes as well, my background is in commercial archaeology. So I'm actually, I'm, technically, I'm not even a Trimzoo archaeologist. I'm just really, I, I persevere a lot. Uh, so no, it would be very interesting, and um, yeah, for the listeners out there, other than my mother and Alex's mother, um, <laughs> Albino is here to discuss her research um, titled "The Horses and Sheep of the Vikings: Archaeogenomics of the Domesticates in the North Atlantic." So, first of all, could you please tell us a little bit more about archaeogenomics and what it involves? just for the layman like myself. Yeah. Um, so archaeogenomics is basically, it's ancient DNA research. And what ancient DNA research is all about is using genetic methods to look at old things. So in our project, we're mostly working with uh, bones. So bones from archaeological excavations that we then sample and do, uh, you know, to see if there's any genetic material there. Uh, and then, in the cases where we do have genetic material, which is not every bone still has any DNA left, lots of, uh, for various reasons, uh, some bones just don't really have any DNA and about 50% of them work. And then we take the genetic information there and uh, pair the samples uh, to each other and to modern samples as well. 
understand sort of how the genetics of uh, sheep and horses in the past have changed. Uh, and the sort of the time frame that we're working with is uh, sort of from the settlement of the North Atlantic. So Iceland is settled around 870. Uh, and we really want to understand like where the sheep and horses that uh, were brought to Iceland initially came from. Uh, and we're also looking at the pharaohs in Greenland who were also settled by the Vikings around the 9th, 10th century. Um, so that's sort of the goal of the project. But we also... Um, the pro uh, what we are doing in our project is we're doing whole genome sequencing, which means that uh, we're looking at the whole genome of the animal. A lot of sort of previous ancient DNA studies um, have only look at the, looked at the mitochondrial genome, uh, and the mitochondria are sort of the, I guess, energy factories of our cells. So uh, everybody has lots of them in their cells, so that's usually easier to find. Uh, it's better preserved. Uh, in old material than uh, the nuclear DNA, which is like all of our DNA. But the the mitochondrial genome only comes from the mother's side. So you can only get sort of half of the story. But if you look at the nuclear genome, you know, which is, I guess you can sort of say like the recipe for how to build a sheep or a human or a horse, um, then you get the information from both the the mother and the father and it just tells you so much more and it has a lot more detail and more resolution than if you're only looking at the mitochondrial genome so there haven't been any published studies of whole genome sequencing of sheep uh, ancient the ancient whole genome sequencing of sheep before uh, there's been quite a few mitochondrial studies uh, which should have depending on the time period and region have been informative um, but we really hope that by looking at the whole genome, uh, we can actually tell a lot more. And we also hope uh, to be able to understand more sort of about the traits of the animals. So, for example, color is something that we'll hopefully be able to say something about. Also, hornedness and polled. So if the sheep had horns or if it didn't have horns. Uh, but we can only, like, there's certain things that we can say about sort of what uh, traits these animals in the past had, uh, but only the traits that we know the genetic basis for. So actually, ancient DNA is really, really heavily reliant on the work that's uh, been done on modern genetics of, for example, sheep. And because sheep are, I mean, they're an important agricultural species and, and humans have been using them for thousands of years, but they are not as sort of high value as, for example, cattle, uh, and they're not, don't have the same status as horse. So there's actually somewhat less work been done on sheep genetics uh, than, for example, on cattle and horse. So that also limits us in a little bit because we really need to have sort of this basic information we need to get from uh, studies of modern sheep that we can then look and compare to the past. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, it, it does. Yeah. Um, and also I imagine like the modern sample will be huge because you have so many, even if you exclude some of the more commercial breeds and you just look at the 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 ancient and rare breeds, like there's such a, a huge modern sample that we have so many weird and wonderful breeds. Yeah. Just, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, I mean, and, uh, and but it's actually interesting that there's actually very, very few uh, whole genomes of modern sheep that have been published and that are accessible online. They're, they're really very, very few. And uh, we so we actually, for our project, are actually also doing some sequencing of modern Icelandic sheep, modern Faroese sheep, and modern Norwegian breeds uh, to compare to our ancient material because that um, that has not been published in an accessible way before. Uh, and, and that's actually one of the interesting things about working with uh, a breed of animal that's sort of currently being used uh, in agriculture because there's lots of genetic work being done on pretty much all domestic livestock species, you know, modern ones. Uh, for agricultural purposes, but because um, you know agriculture is an industry, so a lot of the information that comes out of that is proprietary, so we actually can't get access to it. Uh, and also some of the ways that they, um, this is going to get a little bit technical, I'll try to have it sort of not go too deep into it, but uh, for a lot of like sort of breeding studies in modern domestic animals, people use what are called SNP chips. So they're sort of these little they're sort of designed to look at only specific parts of the genome. So they have selected the parts of the genome that they're most interesting agriculturally to like improve 
the effectiveness of breeds and so people can make more money and be more efficient in their farming and breeding. Um, and for the sheep, the SNP chip that people use the most is a 50K SNP chip. And that actually, uh, you know, the whole genome of the sheep is like 3.2 gigabytes or something. Uh, and 50K, that's only 50,000 SNPs. A SNP is like a single base pair in the, a single base in the genome. So it actually is only a tiny fragment, really, of the whole story. So we can't really use that very much when we're trying to look into the past because it just doesn't have enough information. So there's a lot of that kind of information available, uh, but actually not a lot of these sort of whole genome, you know, where people have seek, taken a genome of a, a single sheep and, and sequenced all of it. Yeah, that's from what I understand, uh, the sort of current research and material modern breeds is almost selective because essentially you're just picking out the bits that are relevant to the industry and to make the breed more efficient and make more money but you're not necessarily looking at traits that we might be interested in seeing sort of in our in archaeological yeah, terms exactly. and and the things also with sheep like most of the genetic work that's being done now is done on for example merino sheep and they are really quite far away from sort of the, these Northern European short-tailed sheep breeds, which are always sort of considered to be, I guess, in some ways more primitive sheep breeds that have been bred less. And that would cover like the Icelandic sheep and the Faroe sheep and most of these sort of sort of local uh, sheep breeds in the, in the northern northwest of Europe. Um, so it's actually very likely that some of these things that people have studied really intensively for the merino sheep just don't really translate very well when you're looking at the genetics of of these north, like of these sort of short European short-tailed breeds that have not been bred so intensely and have very different properties in many ways. So, so just completely out of interest. Um, yeah. So the traditional breeds say found in Iceland, do they look? Anything like sort of the, the traditional British breeds that will have sort of short-tailed, quite small? Yeah, they look, uh, so if people are familiar with soy sheep, they're kind of similar to those. Uh, although uh, today, uh, actually in the 20th century, the Icelandic sheep uh, was bred quite intensely and, uh, and actually had very successful uh, breeding programs in sort of modifying the breed to the standards, you know, to make more meat and have better wool and things like that. So actually in Iceland now, most sheep uh, are white, although there's also a huge variety of color still present within the breed because uh, Icelandic farmers have always been interested in colorful sheep, even when the wool was less valuable, the colored wool. Uh, and also Icelandic sheep are also really interesting because so in Iceland, we have both Polled females, so females with no horns, females with horns, polled males and males with horns. So we have a, which is unusual. A lot of modern sheep breeds have are either completely polled, so neither sex has horns, or only the males have horns, for example. So there's relatively few breeds that still exist that have this really sort of phenotypic variety. So a, a, a large sort of lots of different looking animals with different colors and different shapes and sizes of horns and those kinds of things. So um, that's actually one of the really interesting things about uh, Icelandic sheep is sort of this sort of phenotypic variability. And that applies also to, I guess, most of the most of the Icelandic domestic animals, actually. Uh, the Icelandic cow also has lots of different colors, um, although uh, now most of them don't have horns, but horns used to be very common until the 20th century. Uh, and in the Icelandic horse as well is famous for, you know, having uh, multiple gates and also having lots of uh, different colors and, and really huge variety in color uh, and also a little bit of variety in size. So that's actually an interesting thing about Icelandic livestock breeds specifically is sort of this variety in color, partially because sort of systematic breeding didn't really start until the 20th century in Iceland. And there was never this sort of because the breed like the we only have one sheep breed in Iceland and one cow breed and one uh, horse breed so there was not um, like you see for example in the UK where there's maybe more regional differences and then people were sort of breeding their animals to be sort of very uniform looking in different regions in Iceland this the story is very different so it's actually there's a lot of variety which is interesting again because Iceland is fairly isolated and it's fairly small 
you know, so you would actually expect there to be a lot of uniformity, but it's not like that. So that's one of the things that we find interesting and one of the reasons for why we're doing this research. Because yeah, I think I read somewhere that you, you've taken samples from Jovic as well. Yeah, yeah. so for the sheep, we have samples uh, from several excavations in Iceland and in Greenland and the Faroes and, and Norway. Uh, and I went to, to York, to the Ar- York Archaeological Trust, where, which is really nice and very helpful people there. And I took some samples uh, from the Huntgate excavation, actually. Um, so, and those samples worked really well. So uh, we really want to compare to that as well. So that'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that. Because uh, on the, the horse work that we had done previously showed that uh, there is this uh, mutation in the, in the horse genome that um, codes for what are called ambling gates. Uh, which the Icelandic horses is, is famous for. And uh, the oldest instances of this sort of mutation uh, are found in Iceland and then also in, in, in a single specimen from York. So, and that date to roughly around the same time. Uh, and that was actually a very unexpected result because people thought that this ambling gate mutation was a lot older and came from Mongolia and was probably thousands of year old, years old. But it turned out to be at least the oldest instances that have been found so far are only ninth century and have only been found in really in York and in Iceland in ancient horses. So that's very interesting, really. Yeah, no, it would be interesting to look at also because the, there's um, a British sheep breed that is presumably introduced by the Vikings, the the Herdwick breed that's usually found sort of like in, in the north, northeast part of England and I'm not sure whether any studies have been done on the breed per se, but they think purely because of some written evidence that they found in some manuscripts and the very name of the sheep, they think that Viking settlers have brought that breed with them. Hmm. I, I just thought I'd throw that in there, but I actually have no idea whether any work has been done on that. Oh, uh, that actually I did not. So that's, I mean, like you were saying before, there are so many different types of sheep. I had actually not heard of this breed before, and I will definitely need to look into this a little bit more. I'm looking just now on Wikipedia. Um, it actually, in some, it doesn't look very similar to Icelandic sheep in many, like the head shape is quite different, but uh, I definitely need to, to look into this. But yeah, in the UK is so fascinating as well. I mean, yeah, I guess when you're driving around, you can mostly see the same breeds, but there are so many heritage breeds in the UK. Uh, although obviously most of them are very sort of threatened and small and stuff, but uh, yeah, there the UK is interesting um, sort of livestock breed wise. So, oh, there are, I've met some Zoe because they they have a flock um, at Fengate, yeah. which is sort of um, is a museum and it's got a reconstruction of a few Bronze Age sort of roundhouses and things in Peterborough, so in the um, East Midlands, I guess, and they got a flock of Zoe. They're lovely. Yeah, they're escape artists, yeah. though. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, so I mean, I'm yeah, sheep are. I just I really like sheep, and for Iceland, they are just so important because basically, um, they, there wouldn't be any people in Iceland and the Faroes if it wasn't for sheep, because it's not like in like the the Inuit in Greenland, which you know have are real experts at utilizing like uh, skin and stuff to dress themselves. Uh, in Iceland and the Faroes, there's no, you don't have as much access to fur-bearing animals. So actually, like, and you really need clothes because it's cold and wet here pretty much all the time. So we really I can need imagine. <laughs> to like survive here. And I mean, it's, it's also just, it's interesting to me, like how little interest there has been in this actually in many ways, because, in some ways, you could say that there wouldn't have been a Viking Age without sheep because uh, you need the wool from sheep for the sails of the Viking ships. And the, the Vikings are, I mean, when you think of a Viking, like, I mean, the first thing I think of is a, is a Viking ship. And you needed so much wool for, for the sail of a single Viking ship. So actually, you could say that there wouldn't have been any Viking Age without sheep in many ways. So they really, for me, they're like really key to understanding like, how this process worked and, and where these people came from and how they were able to settle in these really kind of, in many ways, really difficult landscapes. Uh, but sheep really fit well into these sort of island ecosystems of, of Iceland and the Faroes. Uh, you know, they really 
really well suited to this um these types of landscapes and and they're really so it's actually a really interesting sort of how some an animal that was domesticated you know in the middle east how they sort of found this niche here in the north atlantic where they really thrive right just uh one final question that alex and i would like to ask all of our guests what's your favorite bone um i I should probably say the sheep petrus bone. Um, that's one of the bones of the skull from around the ear region. And that's actually the bone that we sample for for our ancient DNA work. And actually, most people that are doing ancient DNA today are using the petrus bone. Um, and it's interesting, the petrus actually means stone. So it's a really hard bone. And that's why the DNA preserves really well there. But like, if you really pressed me, I'd have to say the sheep astragalus. Uh, yes! <laughs> And it's just such a pretty bone. Uh, and, and this has all these interesting like uses in the past. People use it for divination and it just fits well in the hand. And then it's also so archaeologically you can use it a lot for like measurements. And, and it looks and like also, a little toy car. I know. It's, such, it's just, yeah, that's my favorite. But actually the sheep Petrus bone, actually, I like a lot as well. And I generally think that sheep have the prettiest bones. Um, we'll, 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 allow, we'll allow two answers. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for coming onto the show, Albina. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. So we'll see, we'll see you, hopefully, with an Alex on the next episode of Archeo Animals. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Chris from the Archaeology Podcast Network. The bonus questions are available at the bonus content page at www.arcpodnet.com slash members. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. See you over there. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.